Welcome to the Common Grounds Unity Podcast, where we have great conversations with unity-minded Christians. Our goal is to encourage unity of the Spirit within the Stone Campbell Movement and beyond. We believe unity starts with a cup of coffee. So grab a cup and join us as we seek to fulfill Jesus' prayer that we may all be one. And now... Here are your co-hosts. Welcome, everyone, to another Common Grounds Unity podcast. I'm Kevin Witham. Delighted to be back with you and am thrilled to be continuing a conversation that we started last week with Dr. Kent Smith. Uh, to get Kent's introduction, I'd encourage you to listen to last week's podcast. If you haven't, you're going to want to listen to that because it leads so well into this particular podcast today where we pick up a conversation about a, a book that uh, Dr. Smith co-authored. The book is entitled Joy-Fueled, Catalyzing a Revolution of Joyful Communities. You can pick it up on Amazon or at other booksellers. It's published by Luke 10. And uh, if you heard our conversation last week, the conversation uh, had to do with different things that drive us, motivate us. And uh, Dr. Smith is putting in front of us the idea that that joy needs to be the fuel that uh, just ignites uh, our, our passion and our ministry and our, our life with God. So it was a, a fascinating conversation. You'll want to hear the first part of this, and we're now here for the second. And my co-host is Mitch Mitchell. Uh, Mitch has been engaged in a lifetime of ministry, just recently retired after 45 years uh, in ministry as an evangelist and teacher and, and shepherd of congregations. He's now a life coach, and he, he told us last week he's learning uh, more in retirement than he did in his years pre-retirement. Mitch, great to have you back with us, and I'm going to turn it over to you and then let you start off our questions and our conversation with Kent. It's great to be back, Kent. It's great to have you with us uh, today. I, uh, My pleasure. Yeah, it's great to have you. We uh, started our, in retirement December a year ago, we started a house church uh, in my backyard and on Zoom, depending on the COVID situation. And uh, Kent's books have been incredible. This book, uh, Joy Fueled, I'd recommend it highly uh, to people who are listening. And one of the things you say in Joy Fuel is we have become convinced that joy is a top grade fuel, a source of motivation that is superior in every way. Uh, very interesting to me, I actually grew up around NASCAR, and I can tell you no matter uh, uh, of the importance of many things, you want a top grade fuel uh, when you're running, trying to run a car against other people that are doing the same thing. And so uh, this is a much more important topic than NASCAR, right, Kent? Uh, <laughs> uh, so help us define joy as a top grade fuel and also talk a little bit why it's uh, superior in every way as a fuel for your church family. Sure. Well, it's a delight to be back with you and uh, looking forward to our conversation here. Um you know, there's multiple ways to get at joy, but two that I really love 
are one that we're kind of invited to if we pay attention to the word joy in the ancient Greek language, um, because there's a constellation of words all have uh, the word we would pronounce car, C-H-A-R, as their root. Um, the first one of those is joy itself. So joy is kara in Greek. Um, a gift or a grace is uh, charis, that which brings joy. So when I give you a gift that, that brings you delight, then then uh, your joy level rises as a result of the gift. And the third word is gratitude or thanksgiving, which is eucharistia, the word we get eucharist from, our, our thanksgiving meal around the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And uh, so these three words in their constellation around joy remind us really what the the process or the 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 way that love works in the real world so not too long ago um, our little granddaughter was walking down the alley behind our house uh, with Karen and I and uh, she was picking little flowers as we went along and uh, at some point she turned when she had a pretty nice little bouquet in her hand and and looked up at Karen and said mem I picked these flowers for you and she handed her the bouquet and you can imagine uh karen's expression you know her face lit up and uh it was the epitome of joy because what had happened was this little girl had taken a resource that she had access to had gathered it up and then had presented it as a gift because she knew it would bring her grandmother delight and indeed it did so you see that process um i give you a gift and you uh, receive it with joy. And then, of course, what Karen did was she said, thank you so much, Natalia. And uh, so she expressed gratitude. Joy returned. Um, you know, if you stop and think about it, joy is the one thing um, that flows from and that increases all by itself with uh, an infinite capacity to expand. It's really, literally, the only thing we know of that is regenerative by its very nature. Um, love expressed in joy is the one regenerative reality. That's convenient because we serve the God who is love. And of course, God is, is endless because that is the nature of God. Love is always growing. And so, you know, if you, if you stop and think about that fundamental underpinning of of joy, it's not hard to see why joy is the fuel that has the most lasting value. It's literally the expression of the life of God. Sometimes we say, um, love grows in the dance of joy between gift and gratitude. Um, and so this is God's life, right? I mean, this is what Father, Son, and Spirit were doing uh, long before uh, the curtain opens on the history that we can read and understand. Uh, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all there together giving their gifts at the creation. And at the end of the story, um, at the close of the age, they're there again, right? Father, Son, and Spirit, along with uh, the bride, and who has now been invited into the joy of God, into the delight of God, into the life of God. So, um, yeah, it's not hard for me, at least, to see why joy beats all other potential fuels. It's most foundationally connected to God's own life. So that's one way to talk about it. I'd say just real briefly, one other way to talk about it that um, that helps us see it in a slightly different light is 
Joy is the response of our whole selves to a longing fulfilled. So to, to say it um, another word, uh, in another way, joy is the response of our whole selves to something that we have deeply wanted and longed for. Um, and um, what we long for most profoundly at the most fundamental way level is to be loved, to be seen, to be heard, to be understood for who we are, for for the the lover to be glad to be with us and to continue to affirm that we are on a journey together. We're going to move forward together. So um, at least those are a couple of handles on um, how we think about joy in Luke 10 that I think have been profoundly life-giving for us and for lots of other folks. Ken, I'm going to take us back to the, the beginning of the book and then read an, an excerpt from it and uh, and then ask you to comment on it. So I just want our listeners to know I'm going to be reading a bit of a lengthy excerpt uh, and then pose the question to you. It, it, back in the beginning of the book, you quote Matthew 11, 28 to 30, which is a favorite passage of mine. I've got it on a little plaque right here in my office that sits up where I can see it often. Because I relate to it. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Rest for your souls. And then in chapter 11, later in the book, you write, joy and quietness go hand in hand. And then joy followed by rest and quiet are essential for trust, growth, and healthy development. When joy and quiet are experienced in appropriate mo- amounts, shalom is experienced. Shalom is that powerful rest that comes as we quiet our thoughts, perceive God's presence, and know that everything is all right. So in your experience, it, is this what most Christians are experiencing? And if not, how do we get there from here? Yeah, boy, it sounds great, doesn't it? Joy and peace, shalom, rest. Um, but, you know, the truth is that we Americans, we we wear our busyness as a badge of honor. Um, <laughs> the uh, la- yeah. I, think about when was the last time you, you asked someone, how are you doing? And their first response was, well, you know, I feel really rested. I feel pretty balanced, you know. I think I've gotten a good, uh, good handle in this week on uh, what I'm doing and how I'm being. You know, th- mm. that that's not normally the response, right? In fact, um, if someone said that to us, um, I suspect my first instinct would be to say, "Well, what a lazy bum." <laughs> <laughs> uh, we don't give ourselves permission to to live in a place of uh, God's shalom because it's not the culture that we live in. We've deeply imbibed of a culture that treasures um, fatigue and weariness and busyness as uh, markers of excellence and commitment and quality. And um, so um, I don't know very many people at all, frankly, that um, are experiencing this. Um, And yet um, where I do see it, I think those people have a have an impact that's disproportional just because folks sense there's something different about this person or there's something different about this community. Um, and so um, 
as I mentioned in, in our conversation uh, in the last week's session, um, this is not an invitation that is easy because it goes so against the grain that, that we have as humans. We want to um, we want to get things done. We want to be in charge of things. We want to make things happen. We want to feel like we can be in control of our own life and its experiences. But, um, you know, Scripture tells us over and over again that God's invitation is to take seriously the truth that in quietness and in um, trust, you know, is our is our peace, is our shalom, is our hope, is our life. Um, yeah, that's a that's an invitation, but it's it's uh, you're cutting straight across the grain of I think how most of us have grown up and 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 I you know frankly I think often our church cultures are just as guilty as as uh, uh, all the other places that people are trying to live and, and make life work. Um, but we can get there, and uh, that's that's part of uh, what we're certainly working on in Luke 10 and and uh, part of what we're working on in uh, some of the communities that I'm working with most closely here in Abilene. Uh, not easy, um, not hassle-free, not effortless, but possible. And uh, that's good news, I think, for a weary and uh, suffering world that we all find ourselves trying to live and minister in. Uh, you referred to uh, Luke 10 just then uh, as an organization, which I'm not as familiar with as some of the other things in the book. But you defined uh, the organization in your book as a network of joy-fueled, Jesus-led communities of practice, equipping spiritual parents to nurture ecosystems of grace. Uh, I love that word, ecosystems of grace. Uh Talk to us a little bit about the Luke 10 organization and unpack this description a little bit for us. Yeah, well, um, back in uh, 2003 or so, uh, my friend John White and I were working together with a group called Dawn. And Dawn at that time was a international organization engaged in church planting around the world. It had some uh, pretty amazing um results in in their effort to do what we were calling in those days saturation church planting. But mostly the model was a a fairly institutional church approach to church planting. And in some places in the world that was uh, working pretty well, in other places not so much. And certainly that was the case here in North America. And so John and I began experimenting with um, ways to help people reimagine church in simpler ways. Um, And there was a lot of uh, language and a lot of flurry and a lot of innovation kind of going on in those days. Um, long story short, uh, about four years later, uh, Dawn as an organization came to an end. Um, but John and I felt like it was uh, important that that work in North America continue. Um, and so we helped uh, co-found uh, the Luke 10 uh, organization and network. Um, and that's been a, a an amazing uh, process of iteration, learning uh, lots of things that don't work and learning some things that do work as we've kind of uh, walked through that. Um, and at this point, there are, I think, folks that are working with this in about 40 countries and a lot of exciting things happening. Probably four years ago now, um, John and Tony Daniels and uh, uh, and I got together at a 
a retreat, and we were we were wanting to kind of distill, um, just spend some time together with the Lord and with one another, thinking through what are the what are some of the big ideas that God has been highlighting for us in this experience. What are some of the major kind of core values that um, seem to be central to what God is doing among us? And in the course of that time, we identified um, five kind of core values. And you see those in that statement. Um, Luke 10 is a network of joy-fueled, and so uh, Jesus-led communities of practice, um, equipping spiritual parents to nurture ecosystems of grace. Each of those five elements we find to be uh, profoundly important, profoundly effective. Um, and so um, coming out of that retreat, then we decided, well, let's... let's uh, uh, as the Lord leads and opens the, the door, let's plan to write a book about each of these values. So Joy Field is the first of those, and uh, we're deeply gratified with the, the uh, response and encouragement we received from that. And um, as we move forward in Luke 10, um, we want to continue to keep Joy Field at sort of the, the foundation level as a, a, a critical, um, all too rare, but um, increasingly uh, I think appealing to many people component of what it is that we do. Um, and the other elements of that will, uh, Lord willing, be uh, coming out here in the not-too-distant future. We're currently working on the second of those books, which will be uh, Jesus-led culture, it looks like, at this point. So um, that's a little bit about Luke 10. Glad to talk about that um, until your ears get uh, heavy. Uh, so we I'll stop at that point. Uh, let me just say before I kind of ask you a question about that, Kent. For those interested, the the website for the Luke 10 communities is LK10. So Luke10, LK10.com. And you can find out more there. Um, it seems, Kent, that Luke 10 favors small communities or house churches. Um, is that true? And if so, why do you feel this is an effective model for doing church, if I can put it that way. Uh, yeah. Um, well, it's a, that's a great question. And, um, you know, part of what we all, I think, deal with in the church at our time is we, we deal with a, a kind of a core category confusion. We tend to call a lot of things church that I think would have been unrecognizable to the earliest Christians. Uh, not that they're uh, are are bad or evil or even not important in some cases, but um, you know when when the earliest Christians were talking about this new community, this new family that Jesus had come to inaugurate, um, they they had in mind what um, Jesus was modeling himself, which was an extended family. Um, the the household of the ancient world was kind of the model for the earliest churches and, and the best we can tell for well over two centuries, um, going into th three centuries, all the churches were essentially simple, small churches, whatever you want to call them. Um, there's lots of language to talk about that, but they were essentially, um, the kind of family that replaced for most of the people, um, their biological family, right? Jesus said, you know, if you follow me, there's a good likelihood you're going to lose father, mother, sister, lands, fields, homes. Um, and if you do, 
the promise is that in this world you'll have a hundred times as much and in the world to come life um, because Jesus knew that people who were going to follow him were going to lose in many cases their biological household the extended family that was uh, you know the the core of the ancient uh, world culture uh, whether you were Roman or Jewish um, you you came from a family of uh, farmers or of shepherds or carpenters or a family that was ruling a region, the household of a, of, a, of a Caesar. And so household was the core social reality of the Mediterranean world. And when someone went home to their family and said, I've decided to follow um, the Jewish man Jesus, whether they were uh, Jewish or Roman, the likelihood was people would say, well, you have abandoned the true faith, the true religion. Uh, you have brought dishonor to our family. You have become a threat to our business. You're not a part of this family anymore. And, of course, we see those kinds of responses even now in some parts of the world. Um, but in the ancient world, that was just kind of standard practice. So Jesus came to establish a new oikos, a new oikonomia, uh, a new household operating system, a new ecosystem of grace um, that would demonstrate the life of God. That was what the earliest church meant when they said ecclesia. That was that was their category for what church is. Now, lots and lots over 2,000 years of expressions of that have happened for all kinds of very understandable reasons in history. And Clusters of those groups have gathered in all kinds of ways, institutional and non-institutional. And wherever those real families are living out the love of God, where they are really uh, functioning in the giving and the receiving of the grace that they've been given from God, they are good news. They're the treasure that's hidden in the field that people say, like my friend I mentioned last week, John, when they see it, they say, what can I do to get into this? What, what do I have to sell? How can I sell everything to get in on this? Um, so that's what we in Luke 10 are trying to help people grapple with is the invitation to church, as, as Jesus meant it, is an invitation into true family, into true, deep, interdependent, intergenerational communities of God's love, God's purpose, God's joy. And um, wherever we find that, in whatever institutional or non-institutional forms, we're dealing with the thing that Jesus came gave his life for, and that, you know, if we take some of the later writings of the New Testament, Colossians and Ephesians in particular, seriously, is the plan, God's one plan, uh, for the reconciliation of all things in heaven and on earth, this ecosystem of God's grace that demonstrates the multifaceted wisdom of God uh, to the even the powers and principalities. So that's a, that's kind of a long story. Uh, uh, a long response to a short question, but um, I think that's one of the challenges we face is that many people, when you use the word church, are not thinking about that. And so I think we've got a category confusion that we have to overcome in uh, in our time when people really need the real thing. Um, let me just play off that a little bit and and ask, you know, there are some who have skepticism about house church models for, for various reasons. 
Um, sure. Have you experienced that? How do you address some who are apprehensive about uh, this church model? Well, um, I mean, I think it's perfectly understandable. Most of us have only had limited experience with real extended intergenerational community, you know? Um, so I have a lot of empathy and sympathy for folks who struggle to wrap their minds around this. And I feel like I'm still, in terms of enacting it, very much in the learning curve of understanding how to do this with folks who are not biological family. You know, a hundred years ago in North America, when 90% of the folks lived in the countryside and 10% lived in cities, everybody lived in an extended family and everybody lived in a walkable world, right? So most of the people you saw most of the time every day were people you knew and had known in most cases your whole life. Um, whether it was, you know, where you were working or where you were playing or the folks that you went to church with, it was all, you know, in a walkable world. Um, and all that began to change in the last century. And so we've kind of gone through this amazing transformation. And, and I think realistically, this big experiment on how can human life work without people being embedded in extended intergenerational family? How can culture fruitfully be passed on in that context. And, uh, I think we're seeing the results of that, you know, um, you know, the, uh, the loss of a family where I, we have the benefit of grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins and little children and teenagers kind of all working life out together and learning as they go, how human relationships work, what love looks like, what care looks like, what, uh, care for the earth looks like that's sustainable and that, you know, all of that happens more or less seamlessly and without a whole lot of extra thought when you're embedded in those kind of communities. But they're gone for, you know, my my dad and mom uh, back in the in the 50s moved away from their family farms. And the generations since then in our family have not had uh, extended family except, you know, around a few holidays or whatever. And uh, many people at this point in history... Um, have even less. You know, we've gone from extended family to nuclear family in the middle of the last century to lots of broken family and single family. And now, um, you know, we live in a world where more and more people are living homelessly. Uh, so um, we we have a, uh, it's a big reach um, to, to kind of, uh, help people understand how important it is for us to, to rediscover truly interdependent relationship in our time. And people who are skeptical of it um, often do so for very good reasons. They've had lots of hurt and wound and um, trouble making, making life in community work. And so I understand that. But Jesus said that it is the quality of our love for one another that is the distinguishing mark that will cause people to say, these are these are the real deal. Here are followers of Jesus. So I think, though it's uh, though it's hard, I think it's worth it. Um, so that'd be part of what I'd say. Um, and but uh, it it is a it is a hurdle. Again, we've got some some category confusion that we have to work with to help people understand what uh, what it is that we're being invited into here. Uh, Kent, that's great. I, I want to go back and uh, to what Kevin started with earlier. Uh, I happen to like uh, Eugene Peters Peterson, 
uh, version, Matthew 11, 28 through 30, where he says, learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. And I say that in closing out because I know uh, two of the uh, rhythms of grace that you talk about in Luke 10 is checking in and listening. Uh, I think Tony talks about that, that she and her husband ask two questions. One, how do you feel about being with us? I think they're asking God that question. You can correct me if I'm mm -hmm. wrong. And two, is there anything you would like us to know? Uh, so if you can explain that a little bit, and I, I, I'm interested in not just in a marriage, but how that even ties in as like a small community, even asking uh, maybe even some Sundays, God, how do you feel about being with us? And mm. is there anything you would like us to know today? Uh, so explain mm. that a little bit uh, before we close out. Yeah. You know, it's it's just so simple. It's almost uh, staggering at one level, and yet, who does that? <laughs> you know, who who asks the Lord, Lord, how are you feeling about being with me today? And uh, what would you like me to know? What um, we just did this practices with one of our adult sons uh, last night, and had a wonderful time of listening and then conversation around things that were coming to mind. Um, as we as we uh, listen to that and some really clear direction on a step forward in loving some other family members that that grew out of that it's extraordinarily simple but it but for many many reasons we're we're unsure that we can do that or we just don't know how about that and and isn't it self-centered just to ask the lord how are you feeling about us but but the problem is that um we don't know um many of us don't have you know what the what the uh, folks in the psychological world would call a secure attachment with God. We listen to other voices in our heads, accusing voices that point out how we're we're uh, we've messed up, how God shouldn't really want to have anything to do with this. And of course, those voices, when you name them out loud like that, are clearly you know world, the flesh, the devil. They're they're not God's voices. Uh, but we all need to grow in our confidence in that deep attachment that God is love and there's no shadow in God. God doesn't stop being love ever. Um, and his love is endlessly uh, available to us if we're willing to receive it. So if, you know, if you take the risk and start asking God, Lord, how are you feeling about me today? and sit with that, I think you might be amazed at how often God wants to say something that really, really encourages you, because that's what good fathers do for their children, and God is good. So, um, yeah, that's a wonderful practice. And then what do you want us to know? And just to be able to sit with that, again, part of it is that we we aren't so sure that God talks these days. You know, we think about a God who used to talk. We think about God who talked in all kinds of ways back in the, the day. And we think about a God in the future that will talk to us again. But we often live, as our new book will kind of get into in some detail, as functional deists, as though God really isn't here and God really doesn't communicate with us. And so, again, to, to, to engage in a practice that takes seriously the God who is Emmanuel, who planted God's own spirit in our lives and is always available if we are willing to turn that direction, um, it's revolutionary. And uh that's one of the wonderful things that we're seeing in Luke 10. 
Well, Kent, it has been just great to have you with us. I, I would love to continue to explore both of these themes, both joy and uh, Luke 10, what you're doing there with house churches and just smaller group community more. I'm going to be following what you're doing and I'm just intrigued by it and uh, and hope that our listeners uh, have a have a clear understanding and are uh, inspired to, to look deeper into this. I'd love to have you back again in the future to talk more about this. So really appreciate the time that you have given to us. It's been a blessing, and uh, it's been great to have you with us, Mitch, as well. I, I'm going to just say a couple of things before we close, and then I'm going to ask both of you a, uh, a very probing, important question before we close things out that we ask all of our guests. And Mitch, since you're, this is your first time co-hosting with us, uh, I'm going to ask you the question too. So hold on for that. want to say to our listeners again, uh, Dr. Kent Hughes uh, has been with us. The book that uh, he co-authored is Joy-Fueled, Catalyzing a Revolution of Joyful Communities. And I understand you have other books as well and others in the works, but that particular one we've discussed and you can get it where uh, books are sold. You can get it on Amazon. I'd encourage you to pick it up um, and, and read it. We've also talked about uh, your work with Luke 10. Again, the website for Luke 10 communities is LK10, Luke10.com. Um, so encourage folks to check out more about Luke 10 communities. Um, so here's my probing question. And first I'll ask it to you, Mitch, since you're co-hosting and then I'll ask it to Kent. If I was to come to North Carolina and have a cup of coffee with you, our whole, um, our whole theme on common grounds is unity begins with a cup of coffee. It just, you know, begins by building relationships. Uh, it doesn't have to be, you know, some big institutional thing that happens to bring people together or even a great assembly. Just getting together over a cup of coffee with a brother or sister and starting a conversation. Um, if I were to sit down with you, Mitch, and have a cup of coffee, how do you take your coffee? And uh, what's a place locally where you may, uh, you know, take me for a cup of coffee if I came out there to North Carolina to join you? What's one of your favorite spots? Yeah, so uh, in the wintertime, uh, take my coffee dark roast. Uh, with a little bit of stevia to answer that question. <laughs> uh, the Fount Coffee Shop is a local place that I uh, meet a lot of different people at. Uh, I've had a Cups of Coffee ministry for I don't know how many years, uh, just meeting with people. And I'd love to hear your story. I'd love for you to come, uh, uh, Kevin. And uh, I'm buying. You show up. And I think we would... Uh, leave uh, better than we got there and uh, mm -hmm. encourage each other greatly. I'm very thankful you allowed me to co-host with you tonight and to John and very thankful to Kent for the help he's already given me personally. And uh, I'm sure the people will be encouraged by tonight. Well, Mitch, it's been great. You've, you've just been terrific to have in this conversation. And I understand you've got a friendship with our, our producer and <laughs> kind of the brains behind this podcast, John Teal. So, um, I do. He actually has moved from California, uh, just about two, two little towns over. And, uh, 
got hired by my wife. So uh, he's now working with her, Triangle Pros Realty. I'm not putting in a plug there, but anyway, yeah, we've become pretty close. <laughs> well, we I, we hated to see him leave the West Coast and head out there on the East Coast. We love him dearly out here, but no, he's going to be a blessing out there. So, Mitch, thank you so much. Kent, same question for you. If, if I were to come down to Abilene and maybe we were to go to the Bean or maybe you've got a favorite coffee shop, how do you take your coffee and where do you go for it? Where do you get together with folks if, if you do? Well, I like a good cup of uh, uh, organic coffee. Uh, with a little cream, and I'd do that most any time of the day with you. I'd be happy for you to come. Um, if we had my granddaughter with us, we'd probably go to McDonald's and get a caramel frappe. But you know, that's a different that's a different situation. Uh, but uh, you know, uh, the front porch is a great local place here in Abilene these days. They've been open a few years. They're uh, survived COVID and and run by an ACU alum, and it's uh, just a really great space for good conversation. So absolutely all, all the above, any of you that happen to find yourself in this neck of the woods, please uh, uh, let me know and we can sure do that. Well, I'd love to share a cup of coffee with both of you in North Carolina or in Abilene, and maybe we'll get a chance, Lord willing to do that one day. In the meantime, let me encourage our listeners to, to take that and do something with it. Uh, reach out to somebody in your community who's a brother or sister uh, perhaps in, in the, the streams of our restoration movement, the Stone Campbell movement, and start building some dialogue and conversation. Thank you for joining us for this conversation, and we'll be back next week with another podcast. Look forward to being with you then. Thank you for listening to the Common Grounds Unity podcast. Please check out commongroundsunity.org to learn more about who we are. There are plenty of resources, and you can subscribe to the weekly email articles, join the Facebook group, or find our YouTube channel. We've also provided a link in the show notes for comments. You can ask questions or suggest topics and guests. If you would like to partner with us financially, you can do that too through the show notes or on our website. Until next time, God bless. And remember... Unity starts with a cup of coffee.